Thank you for joining us online, uh, and thank you to the few of you who are here in the room to worship tonight. You will need a Bible, and so you can take your Bible, turn to 1 Kings chapter 1 and 1 Kings chapter 2. We're going to look at portions of those two chapters this evening. There are notes uh, that have been posted online. They're on our Facebook page. There's also a PDF version on our website. You can access those uh, if that would be helpful for you. Tonight we're going to talk about death. Uh, We've come a long way in the David story, and tonight we are talking about death. Uh, That's a timely theme. I think we've all seen, regardless of how you feel about recent events, Uh, how many people are afraid of death and dying and sickness and the unknown that that involves for so many different people. And so I thought we would just start off tonight talking about death from a worldview perspective. This is something we've studied at our church on Wednesday nights in the past. We just want to talk to you about worldview. Every worldview has to answer the same set of questions. And different authors have different lists of questions. This list that I'm going to show you comes from James Sire. He has a book called The Universe Next Door. It's a worldview book. And he's analyzing and and describing different worldviews. And he says, and I think rightly, every worldview has to answer this set of questions. What is ultimate reality? What is the nature of external reality? Is the chair really there or is the chair some sort of an illusion? A worldview has to answer that. What is a human being? How do we define that? What happens after death? Just circle that one in your mind. We're going to come back to number four. Number five, how are we able to know things? How do we learn? How do we have certainty? Number six, how do we know right and wrong? That's ethics. Number seven, what is the meaning of history? How do we understand history? And number eight, what life-orienting commitments are consistent with this worldview? Number four is the question that we're thinking about tonight, the question about death. Every worldview has to answer this question about death. What happens after death? We could take, broadly speaking, Christianity and Judaism and Islam and all of those worldviews say That after you die, your body is dead, your soul lives on in some form or fashion, and you experience some sort of judgment. A different worldview, universalism, says that after you die, your soul lives on, and everyone goes to heaven, or everyone experiences eternal bliss. It's a universal thing. Another worldview, naturalism. Naturalism says... When you die, that's it. Nothing happens. Brooke and I watched a TV show this week, and there was a death in the show, and there was an adult trying to console a young child who was grieving this death, and the adult was trying to offer this consoling advice. When you die, that's it. Nothing happens. And the child was not consoled. Neither would I be. Neither would you be. It was a striking reminder of the hopelessness of that worldview, a naturalistic worldview, especially as we celebrated Easter and the resurrection just this last week. Another worldview, Hinduism, says after you die, you come back. There are rules about how that works and how you come back and where you come back and what you come back as, but you keep coming back until eventually you don't come back anymore because you join in with the ultimate. They describe it as a drop of water being 
assumed into the ocean. Buddhism has a different take. Buddhism says you continue to come back, you continue to live new lives until eventually you're not subsumed or assumed into the ultimate. You just simply cease to exist entirely like a candle being snuffed out or blown out. Every worldview has to answer this question. What happens after death? What is death? Why is death a reality in the world? Why is it a universal human experience? And if you and I want to have a thoroughly Christian worldview, not only do we need to know what happens after death, not only do we need to know that the wages of sin is death, that's why death is a reality, we also need to know how to interact with people who are dying. That's one of the things we're going to talk about tonight as David is dying. We're thinking about this worldview question of death. Eugene Peterson says this, now David dies. No life is complete until there's a death. Death sets limits. To be human is to die. By dying, we attest to our humanity. Death doesn't so much terminate our humanity as prove it. The original temptation is to try to be like God. The original warning is that if we try it, we'll die. We all try and we all die. And in this passage, David dies. And so I'd like you to take your Bible. I'd like you to find 1 Kings chapter 1. There's almost 100 verses, 96 verses in these two chapters. We are not going to read all of them. We are going to read some of them. We're going to read enough of them so you get the big idea of the storyline of what's happening in David's dying moments. Essentially, David has already said goodbye to the nation. He has had his retirement party. Uh, They've thrown him a big going away bash. He has pulled back from public life. He is only living now in private life, but he's still the king. This isn't like the United States where we inaugurate a new president and the old president is no longer president. We have a new president. David's the king and he's the king until he dies. And until he dies, there isn't a new king. And so he's pulled back, but he's no longer really functioning as king. And the nation is sort of in a period of limbo waiting to see what would happen. And so we're going to go through these quickly. I haven't given you any blanks here because I want to move fast and I want you to be able to read the story in the text without worrying about filling in blanks. So here we go, quickly. When David was old, roughly 70, his servants hired a woman named Abishag to, quote, warm the king. And so let's read a few verses here. 1 Kings 1. It says, Now King David was old, And advanced in years. And although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore his servants said to him, Let a young woman be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms that the Lord uh, that my lord the king may be warm. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel, and they found Abishag, the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king and attended him, but you understand what the author is saying. The king knew her not. King David's old, and he's sick, and he's cold. And initially they try blankets, and that doesn't work, and so then they try 
a woman, and you understand they're really trying to do a couple of things here. One, they're trying to warm him up physically, but they're also trying to revitalize him. There's no online pharmacy to call for a prescription. And so they're trying a woman, a beautiful woman, a young woman. They're looking at David and saying, we want David back to normal the way we used to know him. Maybe this will work to bring back the old David. Verse 4 says it didn't work. Next, Adonijah, this is one of David's sons, sees an opportunity in David's decline and he tries to take the throne. This sounds familiar, it's because it's happened before. David's son Absalom revolted against his father and tried to take the throne. Now his son Adonijah does the same thing. 1 Kings 1 verse 5, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself saying, I will be king. And he prepared himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? That's an important verse, verse 6. It says, Adonijah was a handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar, the priest. Remember those two names, Joab and Abiathar, and they followed Adonijah, and they helped him. But Zadok the priest, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan the prophet, and Shimei and Ray and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. So he sees an opportunity. David is sick. He's hapless. He's defenseless. He thinks he can take the kingdom. He gets two of David's men to come with him, two key people, Abiathar, a priest, and Joab the general. He has religion and military on his side. He doesn't have the mighty men. He doesn't have other cabinet members. And the reason that the the whole thing is going on, verse 6, is that David had never disciplined his son. We've talked about that in recent weeks. He sees an opportunity. Nathan and Bathsheba step in. They intervene to ensure that Solomon was crowned king. That begins in verse 11. We're not going to read this, but Nathan and Bathsheba essentially work together. There's some scheming. There's some planning. There's a little bit of conniving. They work together. They pull the right strings. They push the right buttons. And in the end, they ensure that Solomon is officially crowned the next king of Israel. Next, Adonijah fears for his life, and Solomon agrees to let him live. If you have your Bible, look over at 1 Kings chapter 1. This begins in verse 41. It says, Adonijah and the guests who were with him, they're already having a party, heard it as they finished eating. When Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, what does this uproar in the city mean? And the uproar was Solomon being named king. If you jump down to verse 49, there's a funny verse. It says, all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose and each went his own way. He had a party and they gathered around quickly, but they didn't stay long. As soon as Solomon was the king, they all ran for the hills. They're like cockroaches in the light. As soon as the light comes on, they go scurrying and they go running. And Adonijah, you can read this in verse 50, says he feared Solomon, he arose and he went and he took took hold of the horns of the altar. Essentially he says, I'm going to go to church and surely they won't kill me in the church building. 
If I'm hanging on to the altar, surely he won't kill me there. And initially he's right. He begs for mercy. He completely folds and gives up this coup. And Solomon shows mercy. And he lets him live. David gives a private charge to Solomon. And in this charge, he asks asks him to, quote, clean up some loose ends. We're going to talk about this more in a minute, but you can see it in 1 Kings 2, verse 1, it says, David's time to, uh, to die drew near, and he commanded Solomon, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong, show yourself a man, keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, as is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you will not lack a man on the throne of Israel. That's great advice, isn't it? Seek the Lord. Obey the Lord. Trust in the Lord's promise. (laughs) And then look what he says, verse 5. Moreover, You know what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, son of Ner, Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and the sandals of his feet. And therefore, according to your wisdom, act therefore, According to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. That's a strange thing to follow up. Love the Lord, seek the Lord, obey the Lord, trust the Lord. Oh, and don't forget Joab. And essentially he says, you're a smart boy. You'll know what to do. Just don't let it be peaceful. Get him, Solomon. Just a few verses down, he says the same thing about a man named Shimei. You may remember when David fled Jerusalem in Absalom's coup, in his rebellion, a man named Shimei cursed David as he walked out of town. And David says, don't forget Shimei. Don't hold him guiltless, verse 9. You are a wise man. You will know what to do to him, and you will bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. So he tells him to clean up these loose ends. The end of our story, at the end of chapter 2, is David dies, and as soon as he dies, Solomon is forced to solidify his grip on the kingdom. And I'll let you read this last section. It's rather long. Let me just mention four names and tell you what happens with these four guys. The first is Adonijah. David's son, Solomon's brother. You remember he ran to the altar, he ran to church, and he said, surely they won't kill me there. It was pretty cunning. It was pretty smart. As soon as David died, he did something foolish. He sent a message to Solomon through Bathsheba and said, would you let me marry Abishag? Solomon understood what he was doing. He was making some sort of play at the throne, some sort of play at royal power, And Solomon immediately executed him. Adonijah dies. Next is Abiathar, the priest. He's fired as soon as Solomon takes over. Solomon says, I'm relieving you of your duties, 
but you carried the Ark of the Covenant and you served my father faithfully, so I'm not going to kill you. Even though you joined a rebellion against me, I'm going to let you live, but I'm taking your job. Then there's Joab, the general. Joab watched Abiathar run and take hold of the altar and live, at least temporarily, and Joab thinks, that's what I'm going to do. He runs to the altar, he begs for mercy, and this time Solomon, following the advice of David, says, Benaiah, kill him. And they kill him. Last is Shimei, the man who cursed David, and David told Solomon, make sure you take care of him. Solomon puts him on house arrest. He stays under the terms of the the house arrest for three whole years, but then he sneaks out and he gets caught and Solomon kills him. All the loose ends tied up, his reign established. The end of David's life, as you go through those two chapters, it's a bit of a mess. It's filled with drama. It's like something you would see on a daytime television soap opera. It's intrigue and scheming and planning and uh, alliances and uh, plots and all sorts of nasty stuff. It's just, it's sad to read it. Sometimes death is a sad thing, not just because of death itself, but because of everything that's going on around it. I thought this week about a former church member. This uh, elderly woman passed away. She was sort of the matriarch of her family. Her husband had passed away years earlier, and she lived many years as a widow. She had two children. She had an incredible amount of wealth and real estate, farmland. And upon dying, she divided that between her children. She did not divide it 50-50. And in her mind, she had good reasons for doing that. It wasn't punitive in her part. It wasn't playing favorites in her part. The division, not 50-50, was actually to rectify some things, and she saw it as a fair division. The child who did not get more than 50 did not see it as fair and wanted to challenge the mother's will. The sibling, the other child who got more than the 50, believed that it was fair and wanted to accept the mother's will, and the two of them in the end took far less than they would have originally taken because they paid lawyers to duke it out and fight it out and slug it out in court. In the end, the will stood, but they both took significantly less than if they had just let it go. It was sad. It was heartbreaking to watch these people lose their mother and not be able to grieve because they were so busy fighting with each other. When they got done fighting, they still had a grieving process to go through. I don't know if you noticed it. When David dies, no one mourns and no one laments. No one stops to pay tribute to him or his life. No mourning, no lamenting, just fighting. Just fighting. Peterson says this. Forty years before his own death, David responded to the deaths of Saul and Jonathan magnificently. We talked about this on a Wednesday night. David mourned Saul and Jonathan. He taught Israel how to mourn and how to lament the loss of life. 
But when David died, no one at all lamented him. He goes on to say this. He died in the middle of a family squabble with no hint of either tribute or eulogy. Instead of dying in peace with his children and wives gathered around him, and the wives, plural, may be part of the issue that we're dealing with here, but without his family gathered around him expressing love and gratitude, he was embroiled in a mare's nest of intrigue and deceit. It's tragic and it's sad. You look at David's death and you see everyone involved has a different take on the situation. And it's interesting that in all of these different takes, there's at least three of them, Abishag shows up all the way through David's death. Here's the takes. Number one, David's servants saw his death as a problem to be solved. Rather than simply saying, you know what? He's old and he's sick. And he's lived a long time and he is not going to get better. They say, we've got to solve this problem. They can't let go. They refuse to let go. And they say, try more blankets. Bring another quilt. Bring a heavier quilt. If the quilts won't work, find a woman. They just want to fix the problem and bring David back to normal. But he's not going to come back to normal. And Abishag gets drugged into the circle. Secondly, David's son. Adonijah, he sees his father's death as an opportunity to be seized. Adonijah in this story essentially plays the role of the prodigal son from Luke 15. The son who goes to his father who's very rich and essentially looks his father in the eye and says, would you please die already and give me my share of your money? Adonijah doesn't approach David directly, but what he's really saying is, you sick tired, beaten down old man, would you just die already and give me the kingdom? After he dies, he sees another opportunity to grasp at power one more time, and he asks for who? For Abishag to be given to him as a wife, and it eventually leads to his death. So there's a problem to be solved. There's an opportunity to be seized. Thirdly, David's wife saw his death as a crisis to be managed. Maybe the most awkward verse in the whole passage, 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 15, says, Bathsheba went into the king in his chamber. Now, the king was very old. We already learned that. And Abishag the Shunammite was attending to the king. What an awkward situation. Bathsheba you might think would be there taking care of David, sitting with David, holding David's hand, reading the scriptures with David, praying with David. Instead, she's given all of those responsibilities to Abishag, and she comes in to manage the crisis. She comes in only to conduct business. There's no how are you doing today. There's no did you sleep well last night. There's no, could we bring you anything to make you more comfortable? It's just business. Business to be conducted. It's a crisis to be managed. Peterson, I think, is helpful. He says, death brings out the worst in many people. We'll be treated as a problem to be fixed or an opportunity to be seized or a responsibility to be carried out and put right. Like David, 
He says the David story doesn't trade in illusion and it doesn't sentimentalize. And at the middle of all of it, the servants and Adonijah and Bathsheba, each time they come into contact with David, Abishag is there. And Peterson makes this observation. I think it's interesting. He says Abishag is the one bright spot in the darkness and chaos surrounding David's deathbed. She's the one person that's just there to care for David, to minister to him, to help him, and to serve him. You look at this situation and you say, ah, it's sad. It's sad that this great king of Israel is surrounded by chaos and turmoil in his last days. Not allowed to suffer in peace, but he suffers in turmoil. And it's worth reminding ourselves that David contributed to the drama and the fighting that surrounded his death. David played a role in all of this. We already talked about 1 Kings 1.6 that says, David never displeased his son by asking him, why have you done thus and so? Two more observations worth pointing out. Nathan promised David that the sword would not depart from his house. This goes all the way back to Bathsheba. And Nathan does extend forgiveness from the Lord, but he says, David, there's going to be a sword over your house that will not depart. Secondly, don't forget David is asking Solomon to take revenge on his enemies after he dies. David is asking Solomon to be involved in all of it. He's making it worse, not better. So David contributes to this problem. Bible scholar Paul House says this, He says, these verses have troubled many readers and commentators. And he's talking about the verse where David says, one, Solomon, I want you to love God. Two, Solomon, I want you to kill these men. He says, they've troubled readers and commentators. They present David giving spiritual advice to Solomon on the one hand and then offering cold-blooded political counsel on the other. It's hard to explain them. It's hard to make sense of them. But it's not all that surprising if you've come this far in the David story. Because what the Bible does in describing David is it describes his life in full. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And it just lays it all out on the table for you to see. Yes, it talks about David fighting Goliath and being the only one with the courage to, to step up in that battle. Yes, it talks about David uh, having a relationship with the Lord and praying to the Lord and seeking the Lord and being a man after God's own heart. Yes, the Bible describes David as the sweet psalmist of Israel. But it also describes him drooling on himself in Philistine territory to save his skin. And it describes him marching out with the Philistines to fight against Israel only for God to save him from that battle at the last moment. It describes his sin with Bathsheba and his sin against Uriah and his sin in bringing Joab into the whole mess. It describes David's census that brought God's judgment on the nation. It describes all of it, good, bad, and ugly. Makes me think of an art project I heard of recently. There's an artist based in Amarillo named Jim Livingston, and he takes Western uh, sort of stylized landscape photos. He has some remarkable, some remarkable work. He's the 
mastermind or the creator of a project called the I Am Project. Uh, And it's not talking about God in the burning bush. It's talking about people that he meets in Amarillo. Uh, The old Route 66 passes through Amarillo, Texas, and all sorts of people still travel Route 66 and uh, make this journey and learn about the historical places and uh, all of these neat stops along the old route. And so he set up shop in Amarillo and all of these people are coming through and he's got an art studio. And in this studio, he's interacting with people and he's got the I Am Project. And the I Am Project is really kind of cool. The people that come through, he asks them, may I take your photograph? And then with your photograph, would you answer three questions? In the studio, people write their answers right there on a piece of paper and their handwritten answers get displayed right next to their photo, and it's the same three questions for everyone who rolls through. It's easy. I am, fill in the blank, whatever you want to say. Who are you? What are you? Fill it in. I am, you write your answer. Secondly, I regret, fill in your answer. Thirdly, before I die, fill in the answer. Three questions in a photograph. You can sort of see a few of these I Am Project uh, examples hanging behind Jim. You can see some of them online. I think he's published some of them in a, a book format. Interesting that the most common answer to the I regret, regret question is, what do you think? Nothing. I regret nothing. I heard an interview with Jim. The interviewer asked him, why do you think so many people say that? Why do so many people say, I regret nothing? By an overwhelming count, it's the most common answer that you'll see on these papers in this project. And he had a few thoughts about it. He said, well, number one, people know these are going to be displayed in public. And so with their mugshot right next to it. They probably don't want to specifically detail their biggest regret for the whole world to see. He said, secondly, I think a lot of people, as they're filling in that second question, I regret what, uh, he said, I think what they're trying to say is the, the things I've done, good, bad, or ugly, have got me to this point in life, and I'm happy with where I'm at now, and so I don't regret those things in the sense that they've made me who I am today. I think you can understand what he's trying to say. Let's be honest, though. If I gave you the sheet, and I promise not to display it for anyone to see, and ask you to write down an honest answer, surely your answer wouldn't be nothing. Surely it wouldn't have been David's answer. As he's on his deathbed, and he's surrounded by chaos and fighting and intrigue and turmoil, surely David wouldn't have looked at all of that and said, you know what? I have no regrets. Surely he had some. Surely we ought to have them. Surely when it comes time to die, you ought to be able to look back on your life if you can see things clearly on a spiritual level in any way, shape, or form and say, I've got big regrets about things I did in life or things I didn't do in life. And when you think about David's situation and you come to the end, you begin to imagine 
all of the things that he had regret over. You come to the end of this remarkable story and you say, David was a great king in many ways, but he wasn't the one that the people needed. They needed someone better, someone greater than David. Look at this quote from Chuck Swindoll. Chuck Swindoll says this, The death of David, the greatest king Israel ever had, marked the end of an era. The closing out of a period of time on earth that could never be duplicated. As great as Solomon became. Because when David dies and Solomon takes over, your hope is maybe he'll be better than David. Maybe he'll make better decisions than David. Maybe he'll be a better king than David. Maybe he'll come to the end of his life and truly have no regrets. As great as Solomon became, he never took the place or equaled the reign of his father, David. In a very real sense, David both began and ended an era. It wasn't uphill after David. It was essentially downhill after David. When you come to this story and you realize David was not the one that they needed. Solomon was not the one that they needed. All the way down through the line of the kings of Judah, none of them were the one that David needed. Until you come to the New Testament and you meet someone named Jesus and you say, that's the one that the people needed. And as we think about David's death, I just want you to think about David's death set next to Jesus' death. Notice a similarity and some contrast. One similarity. David and Jesus both die Alone. I know David is surrounded by people. I know Bathsheba is in the room at one point, and Nathan's in the room at one point, and Adonijah's in the city, and there's people around, but essentially he's alone. He has Abishag the Shunammite, a stranger, taking care of him. He's alone, surrounded by people and alone. What about Jesus? He's surrounded by people, and yet he's been abandoned by his best friends. He's been betrayed by one of his close friends. And beyond all of that abandonment and aloneness, he cries out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Truly alone. Cut off. Some contrast. David sought revenge on his deathbed. Jesus forgave his enemies on the cross. Markedly different in how these two men go out. David goes out and he gives a great mini sermon to Solomon and he follows it up with, kill Joab and kill Shimei. Get revenge for me. You'll know what to do. Jesus on the cross, unworthy of any of the suffering that he's experiencing, actually prays to the Father that he would forgive those crucifying him because they don't know what they're doing. What a contrast. Get revenge for how they hurt me. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. One last contrast. Interesting, as we just celebrated Easter, David died and decayed. Jesus died and was raised. 
That may seem morbid, but it's a morbid point that the authors of the New Testament, the apostles, bring up repeatedly in the book of Acts as they're preaching. They're going around to Jewish people trying to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. And I've given you the references over and over and over again. They say things like this, David, the great King David died and we put him in the ground and he's there to this day, dead and rotting, a pile of bones. Jesus died, we put him in the grave and three days later he came back to life. He's alive. His death actually accomplished something. When David dies, all that is essentially accomplished is a transfer of power. What had been promised to Solomon actually becomes Solomon's. That's it. When Jesus dies, the resurrection proves that something far greater was accomplished, and that's our salvation. That he paid the penalty for our sin. He bore our shame. He suffered in our stead. And at the end of it all, he cried out to the Father, who previously he had said, why have you forsaken me? He cries out to the Father and he says, it's finished. The resurrection proves that it was. That his death actually accomplished more than just a transfer of power in a political realm, but a transfer of life in the spiritual realm. Jesus is the greater David. Are there parallels in their deaths? There are. But there's also a contrast that reminds us David was not the one the people needed. Jesus, the son of David, is the one that we need.